Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And I'm joined in the studio today with our mum. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Um, Emma's done a, a lot of, um, is, is, has a number of, um, yeah, I uh, I should give a proper introduction actually. Um, <laughs> Emma's written a lot about criticisms of the police and that's been quite topical lately and is also a member of the Abolitionist and Transformative Justice Centre. Yep. Um, and, but, so I'm going to interview Emma today and as well as talking to Miranda Gibson, who um, is one of the people behind the Inside Out newsletter, the LBGTIQ newsletter for people in prisons who are LGBTIQ+. Um, yeah, and first I'm going to give an acknowledgement of country while... Do you want to get Mir- Miranda? Sure. <laughs> um. So, we're broadcasting over the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nations, and I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past, present, and future, and I'd like to acknowledge that genocide is still going, and Indigenous sovereignty has not been ceded, and there's been no treaty signed on this land we call Australia. Um, yeah, and speaking about Indigenous sovereignty. It's been a few, another few more weeks of a lot of Indigenous protests being bashed in bashed in the mainstream media, and we saw that with the Solomonth Games recently. And as and to find some like counter coverage and that, you can listen to Three CR and Fire, Fire First particularly, and Black Block and a number of other Indigenous shows. And also, I've read some stuff by Celeste Little and. Um, some stuff on the Indigenous X website is excellent to look at for sort of critiques of the mainstream media. Yeah. And also because that the theme of today's show is on prisons and the police, it's interesting to note how the police targeted a number of like prominent black activists like Dylan Volo, who was arrested multiple times, and Ruby Wharton as well. Mm, did you notice that? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Miranda's also joined us now. How are you, Miranda? Oh, good, I'll just wait. Um, um, yeah. I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. Um, yeah, first I was going, because a, a lot of people aren't familiar with prison and police abolition, so that sort of sort of politics. So I thought um, we could have some introductory an introduction to that sort of thing. Could sure. you give an introduction? Sure, I can have a crack. Um, sure. So I guess um, people may have heard of prison abolition more so than police abolition, um, but increasingly people are talking about police and criminal justice abolition more broadly. Um, but, you know, I guess to put it somewhat simply, like prison abolition is um, like a a movement, like a social movement, um, also a theory and a philosophy or an ideology um, that strives for a world without prisons, um, essentially. Um, so I guess it's 
um, a long-term project and it's um, the the politics of abolition is something that kind of anchors um, activist work and um, scholarly work like in the present as a way to um, critique and challenge um, institutions like police and prisons that abolitionists would see as like foundationally violent um, and inherently unable to be, um, I guess, thoroughly transformed or reformed. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's a critique of um, the idea that, you know, prisons or and police can keep communities safe, um, which is, you know, the sort of dominant ideology that they work on. Um, and I guess it also encompasses um, a movement or practices um, you know, on small scale levels for developing alternatives um, to the criminal justice system. Mm, yeah, cool. Good answer. Do you have anything to add, um, Miranda? Yeah, I think that's a really good um, answer to thinking about it. And obviously, it's a really you know complex question um, to address. Like, you know, what that actually could look like. And I think it's good that you kind of brought up that part of it is also sort of envisioning you know, alternatives to prison and thinking about how we can actually keep communities safe in ways where we don't need police and we don't need prisons because we know these things, instead of keeping communities safe, actually um, are really damaging and harmful to, to communities. So I guess thinking about, you know, ways that within our community we can have transformative justice or different sorts of accountability processes or, or a whole range of different things that people can sort of think about or envision in terms of what could we actually do if we didn't have police and we didn't have prisons and we wanted to sort of make our community safe and address issues in our community as well. So, so I'm wondering what about how would you respond to people who would talk about see the police as like it's, it has its problems it's, just, it's kind of like isn't really different to other workplaces it's it's, it's like it might have some problems um what what's what the, 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 what defines the police and prisons that's is particularly different and and would this have stuff to do with its relationship to the state and systemic oppression especially racism classism ableism and colonial oppression i'm wondering if you could expand on that Sure. Um, yeah, police, like any other work workplace, except, um, you know, they have an exclusive licence to use lethal force. So, um, you know, police are, uh, I guess, what, probably, you know, the most visible or frontline aspect of state violence. Um, you know, their, their role historically, um, you know, if, if we're talking about Victoria, police here were conceived um, primarily to suppress Indigenous dissent to, to um, you know, rapidly advancing um, settler colonialism. Um, but also police have played a really fundamental role in Victoria in um, violently suppressing um, workers' movements. So they've, you know, protected essentially colonial uh, or European colonial um, and capitalist classes. Um, so, you know, today, I guess they, um, I mean, that violence is still incredibly visible, right? Like, um, you know, I mean, as you just talked about before, there's so many examples of, um, incredibly visible ways in which police 
suppress Indigenous, not only Indigenous descent, but also, you know, um, police um, Indigenous life and, um, you know, also, you know, protect property, etc. But I guess when we're thinking about um, queer stuff, you know, they also can look a bit warm and fuzzy sometimes, which I think we're going to talk a bit about, which will be fun. But, I mean, yeah, I think it's really important to um, distinguish police in particular and, I mean, prisons, like also a similar history in Victoria. The first prison in in Victoria was um, actually burnt down by two escaped Indigenous prisoners. Um, Mm, When was that? God, it'd be like... I don't know exact year, but it'd be, you know, the 1850s or something. Mm, um, and, of yeah. course, you know, the first two people to be hung in Victoria were also um, Indigenous freedom fighters. So, yeah. You, yeah, that's been talked about a lot on this station, Tanaminawe totally. and Mwabuhinu. And there's, like, um, uh, Joe Toscano and Caroline Briggs, and a bunch of people, like, have made sort of launched a successful campaign that meant that the city of Melbourne have actually have the first monument that actually reckon has something to do with the colonial wars in Victoria. Yes. Yeah. Have you... Very uh, amazing. Yeah. At the moment, it's, like, surrounded by construction, really, for the for the new metro rail line, but it's on Franklin Street and Victoria Street. Should get yeah. down there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I interrupted you. Where were you? No, it's fine. I think, yeah, I think I was done. I, I guess I would just also say that, um, you know, aside from, um, you know, being a colonial capitalist force, um, you know, also at any point where, you know, there's any, been any kind of social agitation for change or movements for change, like police have always been on the forefront of, mm. you know, repressing and, and pushing back those movements. Like they're a very inherently conservative institution. Like their mandate is to preserve you know, a certain kind of social order. And I guess as activists, like, that's not what we want. (laughs) Mm. Do you have anything to add, Miranda? No. Okay. So we're going to move on to a specific part of Victoria Police. We've seen in, I suppose, the recent few decades, Victoria Police has made a concerted effort to build relationships with LGBTI plus Q plus communities and at the moment they have a number of efforts towards this. Victoria Police currently has a GLOW show um, and GLOW is sort of their gay and lesbian offices which has also been expanded to include um, everyone doesn't fall under gay and lesbian um, bisexual people, trans people, intersex people, queer people and the GLOW show is broadcasted on Joy. Uh, they have one full-time officer and they have a range of other like I think it's well over 100 people who have like the glow stuff in their portfolio now um and we know and I notice sometimes look at the Victoria Police Facebook page and have some very glitzy pink pink friendly social media that reaches millions I they have it's missing a lot more in public relations at the moment um so I'm wondering like what why are Victoria Police doing that? Doing this, and what's their gain from these efforts? What is left out of these images? And I'm wondering if you could, because you've done a lot of writing on this, you could tell listeners some more about more, some more examples of police image work and public relationship, public relations with queer, queer communities. Yeah, I think um, yes, yeah, so we're in a very particular moment where. Um 
Yeah, there's a very um, concerted effort by police forces, certainly in Victoria, but also elsewhere. You can see it um, in the UK and in the uh, in North America where police forces are really trying to rebrand themselves as uh, as pro-gay or as, you know, protectors and defenders of, let's say, homonormative life because, as we know, it's not all queer and trans lives that they're, they're rebranding to protect. It's, it's definitely a very particular um, image and idea of what, um, you know, an upstanding, law-abiding gay and lesbian citizen um, is and can and should be. So, um, you know, we've got, like, as you say, like, um, it's it's very much, you know, a public relations initiative that they're investing in. You know, that's not to say that they don't also do some kind of concrete policing work. And, you know, I've heard very um, mixed things about practical engagements with GLOWs in terms of reporting crimes. Like, I, I know that people have had terrible experiences and then um, I've also heard from um, someone from Vixen, which is the um, sex worker organisation in Victoria that sex worker led, um, that, you know, if sex workers are going to report a crime, like, they encourage them to go to the GLOWs because, you know, generally they get maybe a better response. Um you know, obviously you're starting from a very low bar <laughs> um, and it's mixed, but, you know, potentially, you know, whatever, there might be some um, advantages in a practical sense. But I think it's important that, yeah, like what we're seeing is like a very, um, a lot of resources being directed to this sort of makeover um, of the public facing sections of police forces. And it's interesting in, um, you know, the United Kingdom um, and North America as well, You've and New Zealand now, actually, I, I can't wait for Victoria Police's first um, rainbow branded police car because everyone else is doing them. They're so hot right now. Um, but yeah, it's interesting in, um, in Manchester in 2014 for the Pride Festival there, like um, Manchester Police, um, yeah, had their rainbow cruiser and um you know the commi- the commissioner talked about you know it shows that we're really on the side of equality and it's so interesting that's like you know police are sort of trying to navigate this particular contemporary moment where you know lesbian and gay rights are um they're a lot more talked about and there have been significant advances for you know in terms of the law for you know particular lesbian and gay people um and so you know, it's pretty uncool for organisations to be seen as, like, officially homophobic or whatever. So, um, you know, they're trying to navigate this new sort of moral and political terrain. Um, And, you know, like, we know that, um, you know, the recent investigation, was it last year or 2016, um, into sexual harassment um, in in Victoria Police, um, like, the culture in that organisation, um, you know, there's a lot of problems with sexual harassment and sexual violence, like, for women and also for um, queers in that organisation. So we know that there's a very um, entrenched kind of heteronormative culture, um, but, you know, outwardly there's um, this what what I've been calling like a carceral pride, you know, where um, we've got pride in policing, you know, we've come so far. It's this very like progress narrative, right, where 
like police need legitimacy essentially to be able to police. Like if no one trusts them or thinks that they're totally out of touch with sort of the new moral norms in society, then no one will cooperate with police. So it's like a basic thing that police need. And as the sort of political and moral terrain changes, police need to sort of catch up. Um, But, yeah, I think we need to be really sceptical of, like, their rainbow branding. And, like, I think it it gives them a lot more advantages than it does the majority of the queer community. Mm. Yeah. Like, yeah. This, like like differs markedly from how the police represents like what you're talking about is so different to what happens on like the glow show where i recently like listened to an interview that featured two lesbian cops that just got married who depicts victoria police as innocuous and an accepting workplace um they make the comment that one of the presenters makes the comments that happy cops make a happy community and i'm wondering if you could comment on what is wrong with this book presenting the police in this carefully crafted conservative way and how the happiness of cops and further inclusion of queer trans and intersex people into this violent institution found, um yeah um i think i fumbled over that question but like yeah the contradictions in that totally um yeah you raise a really good points um yeah and that's you know quite hilarious um Yeah, happy cops make a happy community. Very interesting. Like, I think I would return, I mean, definitely, like, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it's quite a um, a toxic, hyper-masculine organisation, for sure. Um, But I guess even beyond that sort of... um, beyond just thinking within the institution and like, you know, maybe it's great that these lesbian cops have a, you know, they have a good workplace for them or whatever. That's cool. But like, I guess we have to return to this, the structural role of police and what they intend to do. So I don't know, there's a saying that, you know, good people can become cops, but there's no good cops because the inherent, um, you know, the, the basis of that role, um, to you know to police and punish those who are most marginalized and um, most disadvantaged in society um that you know that's their role right so um sure we have these happy cops but um you know we also have this rebranded or newly legitimized violent institution and you know, there's myriad examples that we could draw on um, to show that, you know, police violence is very real for, um, yeah, for a lot of queer and trans people, for sure, but also, you know, other communities that, um, you know, we intersect with or are aligned with, um, you know, and foremost Aboriginal people, I think, bear the brunt of, of police violence and police power in this country. And it's, yeah, it's definitely problematic if... Um, the happiness of, of police. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Um, if the happiness of police is, is you know, prioritised or used to gloss over um, that violence, for sure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, like, it's interesting because I... Yeah, I met Emma at um, the Homosexual Histories Conference a few years ago where there was, like, you presented, like, a... Cr- a critic, a, uh, a paper criticizing the police, and I recall there were like there was like a paper presented about the police, and I recall how the conversation became about oh what about like the like the gay cop what like it became centered around like the cops' feelings. It's, it's interesting how it like turns around and centers 
the fleece, like when it's framed um, around the fleece. Totally. And yeah. I think it's interesting as well. Like I think there's an, you know, there is an important distinction to be made and like recent, as as listeners might know, like there has been recent protests at pride marches around the inclusion and the promotion of police at um, queer pride marches, um, you know, not just in Melbourne, but also um, in Auckland and Brisbane and mm. um, probably most high profile um, in Toronto where Black Lives Matter protesters, um, you know, interrupted the the parade and demanded that police not be allowed to march. And that was actually seated. And 2017 was like the first, um, one of the first pride marches in um, Toronto in ages where police weren't there. Um, And, you know, I think there's a difference between, you know, individual people who are LGBTIQ, who work for the police, um, marching in the parade as LGBTIQ people versus marching in the parade as police and really promoting the institution of police um, as, you know, on the side of equality or at the forefront of, of, you know, queer social change. Like, I think that's incredibly problematic um, and, you know, very dehistoricized in terms of, uh, you know, as listeners probably know, the incredibly um, violent role of police historically in suppressing queer resistance but and contemporarily. Um, but, you know, I think that distinction is important and that's what's so troubling to me about, yeah, the elevation of of the branding of police and policing with pride in queer spaces. And I think, you know, it should be challenged and it's really, it's amazing. It's fantastic that people are challenging it. Mm, Yeah, I think I might, yeah, on this topic of pride, we know pride has its origin in rights against police violence led by trans women of colour, including Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, Miss Major and many more. And I recently read a trapped um, a book called Trapdoor that contested mainstream understanding of trans visibility as an uncomplicated good thing. And writers pointed to the his- like uh, particularly one contributor pointed to the history in the seventies where even liberal trans but also queer org- organizations were anti-police, unlike today, when most are like for collaboration with police. And I'm wondering if you could talk to processes that have led to the conservatizing of many queer and trans circles in the last few decades and what part has like forming relationships with the police um has played in like lending legitimacy to them and 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 in terms of building a more sort of apolitical politics towards the police sure a big question i guess (laughs) um i mean you know i guess a simplified, you know, conversation would be around the concept of homonormativity, right? This kind of rise of a particular version of of lesbian and gay politics centred around respectability um, and inclusion in um, heterosexual institutions. Um, so, you know, particularly from the sort of 90s onwards, um, you know, the demand to be included in institutions like the marriage and the military and the legal system through hate crime protections, that kind of thing. Um, And, you know, I think um, you can see that it's not just um, queer social movements. You can see this in a lot of social movements, the pressure to... um, to succumb to power, I guess, you know, like um, it's, I guess, a process of, of co-option that 
happens in a lot of movements. And, um, you know, I think definitely um, a, a changing relationship to police um, is definitely tied to this this politics of homonormativity, the the we're, we're just like straight people kind of thing. Um, but also, I mean, I don't want to downplay like, you know, that historically and contemporarily, um, you know, police have um, been incredibly violent and um, criminalised queer people. And I think, um, you know, that that has created like fear and... Um, yeah, I guess fear and oppression um, for queer people going about their lives. So I understand, like people, you know, don't want to um, don't want to be over police. They don't want to be criminalised. Um, so you know, some people their approach to that will be working with the police to try and alleviate that violence somewhat. And you know, I don't want to discount that. I think that that's, like, I can understand that. Um, but I think, yeah, the problem, some of the problems, like, arise as um, police are sort of taking on a more visible and proactive role, like this stuff that we're talking about where, um, you know, now police, yeah, centred and elevated in queer spaces um, in ways that really glosses over and erases... Um, histories of violence, but also um, contemporary experiences of violence for a lot of communities. So I don't think it necessarily has to be an all or nothing, but the way that it's playing out right now is like incredibly uncritical and problematic. And yeah, that's all I'll say. Yeah. In you talking about homonormativity, I'm recalling a little protest I was at against uh, a venue called Pride of Our Cray holding a pint with a cop at an event just the other month. And I suppose there's a lot of issues caught up with this around gentrification of the inner city and queers implicated in that process. Um, and also, yeah, homonormativity. And I suppose it was kind of us disrespectful protesters... Uh, there and a respectable white cis gay man owner who it wasn't like the glows reached out to him he like invited the cops in which is quite like a yeah um a thing um the event wasn't shut down but it was highly contested and when the glows answered questions they were quite well crafted many weren't really answered and one one thing that came up was incident in 2016 when some queers were assaulted by someone in Footscray and police failed to help them when they were called. They failed to come and respond to incident. And when they went to the police station, transphobia and queerphobia weren't allowed to be in their statements. And in later meetings with um, uh, one glow tried to talk them out of lodging a complaint against the police. So I guess, like, I'm wondering, like, why are police unlikely to be at best unlikely to be best helpful in conflicts and assaults for most queer people and instead likely to replicate violence marginalized people face why does the presence of glows not seem to be about combating oppression but instead be giving police cover for the oppression they perpetrate totally yeah it's a very um interesting juxtaposition between that event and um yeah what went down in footscray that was in the gay press um yeah like 
I think, um, you know, certainly in that event, like, you know, it does seem that transphobia was was a factor that structured how that played out. Um, but also, you know, I think at a, you know, if we look at police, I think at a broader level, like police and victims generally, um, like I think regardless of whether a victim is LGBTIQ, police are largely ineffective at responding to victimisation, you know. So, um, like, I think it's, it's, it is you know, partly a transphobia issue, but I think it's also a broader issue about the police kind of, yeah, not actually being responsive to victims um, in so many cases, right? So, um, and then I think also, you know, that event, it's interesting and it sort of reminds me of this thing around homonormativity for sure where, um, and I've definitely been in those spaces where, um, you know, it just, is it a coincidence that it's often, you know, white cis gay men who, um, you know, get very defensive about, um, you know, how police are great and they're really helpful now. And, um, but, you know, it's like, yeah, when um, I guess you have this homonormative context where certain, um, you know, lesbian and gay identities who, um, you know, are don't face marginalisation and exclusion based on their gender presentation or based on their uh, racial or class status or Indigenous status, um, you know, so they they can access um, these spaces of power and legitimacy and respectability if it wasn't for their sexual orientation, you know, so it's just like a very single issue way of looking at it, right? Um, and I think, you know, it creates this real um, schism between like queer and trans folks who are never going to be able to conform to these um, or, you know, who just don't want to conform to these um, spaces of respectability that are incredibly, you know, racialized and classed and gendered. Um, you know, these moves towards inclusion for some people are always going to draw new lines of exclusion because those who are newly included, you know, that's that's not solid. That's really tenuous, right? So, um you know, lest you sort of be dragged back to that that space of exclusion through being associated with, you know, sex work or criminalisation or drug use or whatever it is, um, you really have to, like, maintain and draw that boundary and be like, no, I'm a, you know, law-abiding gay man or gay woman who loves the cops, you know, I want to cooperate with the police and that, um, you know, I think that's historically produced, like I was mentioning before I think that comes out of this history of violent exclusion um but you know the the paradox is now that it you know reproduces more violence that I guess in some ways is harder to see but is very much present Mm. yeah I suppose it's like yeah it's a contradictory moment where sometimes like the pressures of homonormativity ends up meaning that um there's this pressure to be even more respectful than straight people for many queer people and end up, yeah, there's, like, sections of the community that are just, like, so much of their life is tied on this idea of following homonormativity. Mm. Um, yeah. And you're listening to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio and 855 AM and on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au slash streaming. I'm Iris, and I'm joining the studio here with Emma Russell and Miranda Gibson. Um, so, sort of changing the focus of our conversation a bit, I want to talk about um, 
some issues to do with prisons in Victoria. And there's currently a ban on pen pals for prisoners in Victoria. Um, and this goes along with the routine deprivations of prisons, I suppose, such as having no internet access and like, like being confined to a small kind of room for most of your existence in prison. So I'm wondering if um, you could talk to the logic of this ban, how and how does it relate to prison management and control of people and isolating people inside prison? Yeah, well, I guess um, in terms of the ban, the commissioner that's in charge has... Co- basically come out and said that the reason that they've got it is because their concern is that, you know, prisoners would target vulnerable people um, on the outside. And so, you know, they're trying to justify it through this. But as you say, it's really it's really another tactic that the prison is using to further punish people. Um, you know, people are already isolated by being placed in prison. They're cut off from their community, from, you know, friends and family and to further restrict people's access to, to that community is is a really damaging thing to be doing. And it's actually the, you know, all other states in Australia, um, pen pals are allowed. So it, it sort of doesn't even follow through in terms of the logic of other um, corrections in other states. Um, and, you know, I think... Uh, from our perspective at Inside Out because we have a lot of contact with people inside um, so our organisation is um, involved in LGBTIQ uh, prisoner support and we have about 85 members who are um, inside around Australia and quite a lot of those are actually in Victoria and it's probably the number one thing that people sort of ask us about is you know getting a pen pal because I think Um, you know prison itself is so isolating but then on top of that you know a lot of people um, who are queer and trans are further isolated because maybe they're disconnected from um, friends and family um, when they've come out and things like that and that you know that that people are sort of asking that they want to have a pen pal who they could talk to about issues that they might be experiencing relating to their sexuality, their gender and things like that. And, you know, that's something that people on the outside can access as a range of, you know, ways that people can get involved and, and be a part of the queer community or relate to other people and get that peer support. And the fact that it's being denied to people in prison is you know, is a really damaging thing in terms of the isolation that they're already experiencing. Mm. Yeah, could you tell listeners some more about the Inside Out project that you're a part of? Yeah, so we've been going, I think, about two years now, and we're based in Melbourne, but we operate all around the country in terms of um, prisons that we uh, have members in. And the main thing that Inside Out does is we produce a newsletter. So every three months, we put out a newsletter, which is basically for people who are in prison but we do make it accessible to people on the outside uh, through our website so people can sort of read it and see what 
what's happening. Um, and in that newsletter, the majority of it is content written by um, people inside. So we have letters, articles, um, poetry, and also artwork as well. And what we found is f- from feedback from people is that it's a really, it has been a really powerful tool in terms of being able to share their stories and hear one another's stories and get support um, and strength through that process as well. So, you know, we've had really good feedback about it. And what we would really like to be able to do is add on top of that to also have a pen pal program so people can get more of that sort of one-on-one support and friendship um, with people as well. And so that's why we really want to fight against this ban so that we can make that accessible to people as well. Mm. In terms of fighting against this ban, what are some ways to do that? Well, I guess one thing that, you know, we want to do is sort of get the word out about it because I think that it's something that, like most people that I've told that this is the case, are really shocked because they have no idea that that would be something that's going on. Like, I think it's sort of assumed that people in prison, although they have all these other rights taken away from them, would be at least allowed to write a letter to somebody. Um, so I think just being able to spread the word. We've, um, there's an organisation called uh, the Federation of Community Legal Centres and they've got um, a petition going online. So if you uh, look that up um, online, you should be able to find it. And I guess they're trying to get as many signatures as possible so that they can present that to the commissioner and hopefully put pressure on the commissioner. But it really is... Um, you know, down to just that bureaucratic decision. It could be overturned quite easily um, by the commissioner if there's enough pressure. So I guess, um, you know, people writing to to the commissioner, signing that petition and also just spreading the word about it is, is a really good way to try to build that pressure up and hopefully yeah, get that overturned. Mm. So when was it introduced um, by, do you know... I don't actually know when it was introduced. Um, we became aware of it um, probably at least two years ago, I think, um, because we, as I said, w- one of our most common um, requests was to have a pen pal program and that's something right from the beginning we really wanted to uh, get going after we'd sort of set up the newsletter. Um, and one of our members inside in one of the uh, Victorian prisons wrote to us and, and told us about this ban, and and so they obviously had been given that information that they weren't allowed to have pen pals. Um, so it has been going for, for a while in Victoria, uh, as far as we know, at least a couple of years, but we don't actually know um, yeah, quite how, how far back it actually goes. Mm, yeah, that's, yeah, it's really troubling. Um where can people find more about Inside Out? Um, so people can find us on our website, which is insideoutaustralia.org, and on there um, we'll have information about the pen pal ban um, and also people can read um, our newsletter. We've just published our sixth edition of the newsletter, um, so people can look at that one and the back issues as well. And I think they're really a, a, a really amazing read to sort of hear from people inside because often we don't we don't get to hear those stories um and to see what people are experiencing and um yeah i really encourage people to go onto the website and have a look mm, cool so yeah check out inside art is at inside out dot inside out australia dot org okay cool um 
Yeah. Can, can I also draw a link there? I think, um, you know, some of the stuff that we were just talking about earlier around, um, I guess, you know, the particular visibility and dominance of a certain kind of lesbian and gay politics. Um, I think, yeah, like the Inside Out project is really amazing because of the way that, um, yeah, I think like criminalised and incarcerated LGBTIQ folks are really erased or invisibilised in um, dominant LGBT rights discussions in Australia. And, um, you know, I think part of that, um, well, you know, I think there's a lot of political reasons for that, as we were just talking about before, in terms of uh, in order for, you know, lesbians and gays to be seen as respectable and worthy of rights, you know, we need to be um, distinguished from, you know, those who are criminalised. But um, I think, you know, it's also challenging because... um, you know, there's, unlike other groups, like, you know, we, we know that, um, you know, for example, like, people who are, people in prison are, like, unemployed, they're, you know, don't have access to formal education, or, um, you know, they're Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, so we know that kind of stuff about the makeup of the prison population and who, who it targets and who gets caught up, but we don't actually know that stuff about LGBTIQ plus folks, because, um, you know, that that information isn't available. And it's, I mean, I think I'm not necessarily advocating that um, that information should be collected. I think there's probably a lot of risks, and Miranda might know more about this, but, like, um, there's probably a lot of risks for people to identify, you know, not even just in the general population in prison as LGBTIQ+, but let alone identify to to the authorities, to corrections, that um, that that's their identity so that then they can be counted or something. Um, is there, I guess, is there stuff that comes out in the newsletter about, um, you know, do, are people out in prison or like, do they, are there struggles with that? Um, yeah, it's definitely one of the topics that people talk about. Um, and a lot of people do write and say anonymously or, um, you know, they don't want to be identified because they aren't out and they're aware that there's a lot of risks to that. And then we also do have a lot of people writing about their experiences when they are open about their identity um, in terms of homophobia, transphobia from inmates and from um, prison staff as well, and including, you know, um, physical violence that they might have experienced. Um, So I think, you know, there are a lot of risks for people to be out in prison, and that's something that people do sort of talk about in the newsletter a lot. Mm. Mm, yeah. Um, and, you, and for people that have tuned in recently, you're listening to Karenia on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your AM dial, on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Um, I guess, so. yeah, in thinking of these ish, issues and I suppose the invisibility of talking about... of queer, trans, intersex, people in prison, um, invisibility of that being stuff that's talked about in a lot of sections of these communities. Um, I suppose, like, occasionally, like, there is a more high-profile case, and this is something I've mentioned previously, um, around CJ Palmer, who um, is a trans woman of colour and a former sex worker who was allegedly found guilty for transmitting... I mean, not for that, but for carelessness around grievous bodily harm in relation to HIV transmission to an ex-partner. Um, and sh- she's like facing imprisonment for six years inside men's prisons um, 
where it weren't weren't for like high levels of outside pressure, she wouldn't have even received basic medical needs, because ridiculously, like the doctors, like oh, you can't have them because you're like in a men, men's prison. So this is like the contradictory logic that happens when a man, like particularly trans women of color, in prison. Um, and I suppose a lot of the, what's come out of this case was harmful sensational, sensationalism in the media and how some certain people are viewed as like inherently suspicious and guilty even when they contest claims made against them and that are quite hard to prove. Um, and I suppose like thinking about this in relation to the same state that releases on parole someone that, that was involved in allegations of murder against Indigenous boy... Elijah Doughty, um, who was only found guilty for dangerous driving, occasioning death, death and not manslaughter, who is already out after 19 months of a three-year sentence, and the man's identity is completely being protected. I suppose, um, what could you say about the logics that operate in the criminal injustice system? And yeah. Yeah, that's um, yeah, a pretty powerful juxtaposition between um, yeah, the way some people are, are treated um, compared to others. Yeah, that's pretty profound. Um, I think, yeah, like it's interesting, it seems like, I mean, I don't know heaps about this, but like, um, like the reality of, of prison life for LGBTIQ plus people and, you know, particularly in this case, trans people, like, um, you know, yeah, it, it it rarely seems to um, to garner attention. And it's interesting in C.J. Palmer's case, I mean, the, my impression is that it's been sex worker organisations that have raised the profile of that campaign. Yeah, it's mainly been, yeah, because she's a former sex worker. It's been... Uh, I forgot the group name that operates in Perth. It's not... It's like a smaller sex worker thing than Scarlet Alliance. But, like, yeah, through those networks, yeah, it's been a lot of organising by sex workers that have... Um, like raise the profile of it and listeners can support CJ by like googling CJ Palmer chuffed because there's a campaign um, to provide us some uh, some support while she's in prison or send her a letter as well um, yeah but if it wasn't for those networks I mean like there would be no support yeah, and I mean, yeah, I think, like, sex worker organisations seem to be, um, you know, they're often at the forefront of, like, some of the the most, like, challenging struggles around, um, you know, LGBTIQ issues as well. And I think um, that that's something that's, like, um, you know, I guess deeply troubling that um, that sex workers aren't often included in those in those the more dominant LGBTIQ spaces mm, um, because they're often yeah. doing that really like that difficult work and supporting people. Yeah, yeah, they've been excluded from Mardi Gras for a number of years yeah. in Sydney. It's really profound. Um, but anyway, it also just like reminded me of how you know, like yes, there's this like lack of understanding and invisibility around LGBTIQ plus experiences in prison, um, but also at the same time, there's like you know, such um, kind of popular culture fascination, right, with, like, sex in prison and homosexuality in prison and, um, you know, like, so many kind of weird myths and fetishization um, that I think, um, you know, really kind of gives us a very skewed perspective, right? And, like, um, like, I know there's not much research on this, but I know, like, you know, there's a lot of stuff around in popular culture around prison rape, for example, right? And then, 
um, the some of the research that has been done on um, sexual practices in prison in Australia, like it shows that you know the the, growth, the vast majority of sexual activity is consensual, right? But um, that's something that's like definitely not um, like understood or or known, and like the way that um, you know it's like historically like. Um, homosexuality has been seen as like a symptom of criminality you know if you go right back into like the 18th or 19th century it was like um, you know the more masculine presenting women were considered to be more inherently criminal and all this kind of stuff like I think um, you know queerness and gender nonconformity and sexuality have been so deeply bound up with um, you know pop culture and so-called scientific understandings of of what criminality is and and what the prison does and um you know i think i've there's also this this um really great book um called criminal intimacy by regina kunzel where she looks at um the history of sexuality in prisons in america and she talks about how um you know the the kinds of, um, like, okay, let's say same-sex sexual activity that happens in prisons um, at, at quite high rates really complicates kind of, like, the dominant understanding of, of the homosexual, heterosexual binary that, like, the outside world works on, you know? So I think, yeah, in some way she argues that, like, prisons, like, can become kind of, like they show, showcase how, like, sexuality and gender can be more fluid than is often allowed um, in the outside world, which is interesting. Mm, yeah, really interesting. And we're coming to the end of our show. I'm Corinne on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your AM dial. And I'm Iris. I'm with Emma and Miranda. To just quickly finish off the show, I think, uh, unfortunately, we haven't covered this area very much, but I'm thinking about yeah, what are the alternatives to like, um, carceral feminism, to carceral queer and trans stuff? So I'm wondering if you could talk about any organisation you're a part of or any organisation or movement you look up to. Um, start with Emma. Oh, um, sure. Well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a part of the Abolitionist and Transformative Justice Centre, as is Miranda. Um, and I guess, you know, yeah, we're trying to think through ways to, um, yeah, promote, like abolitionist ideas in popular discourse and think about how, um, you know, there might be decarceral alternatives to the current system of, you know, increasingly locking people up or re- increasing reliance and expansion on, of policing. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess also from our perspective at Inside Out, I think just, you know, being able to envision in whatever project we're doing um, – to have that grounded in that abolitionist framework and, you know, while we're sort of trying to do something in the, you know, immediate future in terms of making this newsletter to connect people together um, and to break down that isolation but always sort of trying to come at whatever we do from that perspective of our long-term goal being the end of, pri- of prisons as well. Cool. Okay. Um, I've also... One of the organisations um, in Australia... Like, I haven't personally had much um, involved... I haven't... I'm not involved in it, but Sisters Inside is a great organi- organisation. And so it's flat out. And, sis- and there's, like, the Our Prisons Obsolete Conference, I believe, is coming up in November. Have you been to one of those conferences yeah, before? Yeah, I've been to several. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, it's happening in Brisbane again this year, later this year. Yeah, worthwhile attending if people are interested. Cool. 
Um, yeah. So that's about all we have for this show. Um, you can you can find Queenie on, on Facebook at just type in Queenie and you can email us at Queenie at gmail dot com. Thanks for tuning in. You can tune in next week from Frida. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.